Please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. We'll be turning this morning to Genesis 37. Last week, Pastor Steve led us, uh, as we looked at, at Genesis 34, as Jacob was returning to the promised land of Canaan after living with Laban for 20 years. And, and as Jacob was re preparing to have that encounter with Esau, and Jacob was afraid, he prayed, and in that prayer he prayed to the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac. He prayed to the God of his father and his grandfather. But at the end of Genesis 34, after he had had that encounter, after he had seen God's blessing, after he had wrestled with God, Jacob returned and went to Bethel and set up a new monument there, and he called that monument El Elohi Israel, God the God of Israel. Jacob embraced his new name and he embraced God as his God in a new and profound and deeper way. And so we jump ahead 11 years to Genesis 37 as Jacob's story continues through the stories of his sons. And But Jacob, even though he had that profound and new encounter with God, he's still a jar of clay like us. He still is, is a fallen and deals with weaknesses and sins, and we see that in this story today. So hear, hear God's word from Genesis 37. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his sons, because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his father saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. And in verses 5 through 9, we see Joseph has two dreams in which he is portrayed as ruling over his family. And beginning at verse 10 again, when he told these to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. And when in verses 11 through 17, we see Jacob sending Joseph off to check on his brothers who are tending the sheep. And Joseph ends up in Dothan, 50 miles away from where he started. Beginning again in verse 18, Joseph's brothers saw him from afar. And before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. 
The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. And they took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe in many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. The word of the Lord. O Heavenly Father, you have given us your word as a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. As Pastor Andrew preaches, send your spirit to open the eyes of our hearts. We pray that this would not just be a familiar Bible story that we have heard many times, but may it be a fresh, new account of the story of my heart, the story of my sin, the story of my salvation, and the story of a new beginning of more grateful service to you. We pray this prayer in the name of your Son, our blessed Redeemer and friend, Jesus Christ. Amen. Please be seated. Well, good morning. It's great to be back. We had a little vacation, and uh, first week was uh, fun, full of people and visitation, and not restful at all. Uh, second week was a little more restful. Uh, so it was good to have a balance of, uh, of both, just get away. But it's good to be back. It's good to open this story with you. We're making our way through Genesis. We're skipping a couple of chapters here and there just simply for the, the sake of time, not because they are unimportant, certainly not because they are unimportant to the story. I want to connect a few of those for you even this morning. Um, but uh, we want to get, we want to finish Genesis this summer, and uh, so we're going to move through it. Uh, really, uh, as Mark said, you know, when we come to these last chapters, sometimes they're, in my estimation, erroneously called the, the stories of Joseph. Uh, they are the stories of Joseph, but you saw verse 2 of our passage say, uh, these are the generations of Jacob. 
and, and this is the story of Jacob as told through his kids. Now, there is a good bit of focus on, on Joseph, but there's focus on all of his kids, and there are some things that we really can't understand about this narrative unless we see it. And, and this chapter starts the story. You make a grave, grave mistake trying to understand this chapter apart from things that have gone ahead and things that are to follow. This is a slice of the story, a slice of the story in which, incidentally, God is not present. Did you notice that? I mean, very obliquely in verse 36, we, we get the idea that there's something going on. Meanwhile, you know, Joseph was sold to Potiphar. That's the only sort of hint that God is at work. Even the dreams. Every other time when dreams have happened, you know, it was, we've been told that God is in those dreams, giving those dreams. We're not mentioned. That's not mentioned at all here. And I think Part of what we need to see this morning, and part of, you know, I, I believe what God wants us to do is stop and to look at what life is like when we are not uh, experiencing God, when we're not interacting with God, when He's not the center of our lives. Uh, how does that play out? How do we feel? How do we experience that? What does that look like? Because we all have those moments, you know, maybe it's a day, an hour where you feel like God wasn't present. Maybe you're in the midst of a really dry spell. Uh, it's been a couple months, it's been a couple years, it's been a whole decade that you feel like God has not shown up in my life. Sometimes it's in big ways. I just listened to Sarah Ingram talk a little bit about Zambia and sex trafficking and all of those things. And we say, where is God? Where is God in uh, the, you know, things like the World Trade Center? Where is God in things that go around the world? Sometimes it's in the very ordinary things of life. Uh, one writer, African-American woman, puts it this way, if my life could be likened to a book in the Bible right now, I would show enough, be smack dab in the middle of Job. Everything I feel is trouble hitting from every corner, and it's hard to keep believing that greater is yet to come when disaster is everywhere. It's crouching inside my mailbox in a big old bright-colored envelope. It's on the other end of my phone line with an 800 number attached to it. It's sitting in the doctor's office. It's pulling up in the back uh, in a tow truck. It's calling from my daughter's school. Disaster is everywhere that God should be. Have you ever felt like that? Do you maybe even feel that way today? Again, Genesis 37, I believe, is an invitation to look at that more closely. What, what is life like when God isn't present in the chapter? You know, when we don't experience Him, when we're not calling out to Him. Now, Again, I, I've said that this chapter properly belongs in its context, context that's come before, context that's going to come after, but it is only part of the story. And the story is primarily one of succession. Uh, these are Jacob's uh, generations. Jacob is the one who is in view, and, and a big question is, who is going to be 
Jacob's descendant who stands forth as the chieftain, who stands forth as the patriarch of the family. Um, we would think that it's going to be Reuben, right? Reuben is the oldest, and so we would think that the, you know, the rights of primogeniture, the, the, the birthrights would pass from Jacob to Reuben. We've already seen that that doesn't work out, you know, whether it's Cain and Abel, whether it's Jacob and Esau, you know, all of these things, Isaac and Ishmael, there, there's usually a twist in those rights of primogeniture. Reuben doesn't know that. In chapter 35, Reuben sleeps with Jacob's wife uh, or concubine, Bilhah, and uh, that's a move on his part to take power, to say, I am now the head of this household. Um, Very important. Uh, You start to think, okay, that backfired, and you really hear that in Reuben's interactions in this story, you know, some of his ideas with regards to Joseph. Uh, When he comes back and finds Joseph gone, he says, what will happen to me? You know, he's he's thinking about how he could get back in the good graces of his father. Uh, Significant details in the story. So you start looking down. You think, well, maybe Simeon and Levi, you know, the second, the third born. Maybe they are the ones that will step forward in terms of leadership. Uh, But they're violent people. Chapter 34, Shechem. Interesting note, you know, in Shechem we have the rape of Dinah, and Simeon and Levi have gone through and waged war on the Shechemites. Uh, They are good people to have at your side if you need to fight somebody, but maybe a little bit hot-headed, maybe not quite, you know, in line with following the Lord if you're looking for true leadership. Of course, Jacob thinks leadership belongs to Joseph. It's exactly right. You know, a lot of people have said, you know, this coat of many colors uh, is something that uh, it just simply shows Joseph's favor to him. Now, it does that. It, it definitely shows that he loves Joseph. But there's more to it than that. If we look at the, uh, you know, sort of how the only other time that this is used is in this idea of a coat of many colors. It's, it's very mysterious was uh, Tamar in 2 Samuel chapter 13. The idea there is that she's a virgin princess. Uh, So there's this connection with rule and the coat that is used. Uh, The Hertz commentator observes, we now know from the painted tombs of the Bene Hassan in Egypt that the patriarchal age, uh, during the patriarchal age, Semitic chiefs wore coats of many colors as an insignia of rulership. Jacob, in giving Joseph a coat of many colors, marked him out for chieftainship of the tribes at his father's death. Uh, So there was more to it. He was recognizing or he was looking on the outside and he was saying, Joseph is the one that I want to take over uh, the tribes at my death. Maybe that was with good reason, you know. Joseph is a good-looking guy. We'll see that later on with Potiphar's wife, and that makes sense because he's Rachel's son, right? She was very beautiful. Uh, He's got some leadership gifts. We see that in the way it works out in Egypt and the planning and all of the, the different things. So outwardly, when you look on the outside, Joseph has got all uh, everything that seems to indicate leadership. But what do you know about Jacob's line? 
There's a few spoilers in here. We're going to have to follow this out over the next couple of weeks. Who is the one that steps forward as the carrier of the line of Jacob? It's Judah. It's the lion of the tribe of Judah. Do you notice here, even in this passage where Judah says, what prophet is there? Uh, you know, if we, if we kill him, we should sell him and, and get some money. It says, and the brothers listened to him. You know, something about leadership, even with regards to Joseph. And so we're going to have to work this out. Because you remember chapter 37, which we have before us. Next week, chapter 38, there's a break from Joseph. And we go and we follow Judah. But this is the, the context here, is that there is succession in view. Uh, who is going to be the one who will take up for Jacob? And when we realize that, we, we realize that there are things that each group, ways that they are acting that are not in line with where God would have them act. You know, God... Uh, you know, for Jacob, he is not shown to be seeking the Lord's will. He, he is using his own paternal favoritism uh, to, to embrace Joseph, to give him the sign of leadership, to privilege him in, in so many different ways. Uh, Jacob, he has these, you know, he has these experiences, but we know over and over again he comes back to his own schemes. His own ways of doing things, the ways that uh, he doesn't seek the Lord's wisdom. And here we are now, uh, 11 years after his experience with God at, at Jabbok and, and his being established in the name of Israel, and, and we don't see the name of the Lord on Jacob's lips. Even at the end, you know, when he is, is faced with Joseph's death, he doesn't cry out to the Lord. He doesn't allow his grief to be consoled. Uh, he, uh, he's, he stays in himself. Of course, the brothers, um, and, you know, maybe just in setting the story in context, you have a little bit more compassion for the brothers. I mean, think about their existence. From the chapter 28, 29, 30, uh, 33, everywhere we've gone, the message is these brothers do not measure up to the children of Rachel, right? Rachel is the preferred one over Leah, over Bilhah, over Zilpah. You know, uh, Rachel is the preferred one, and her kids are the preferred one. Uh, and, and so all of their life, they have grown up with this message that you don't matter. And it's come up in, in very significant ways. I mean, chapter 33, when Jacob is going out to meet Esau, and, and he's afraid that Esau is going to kill him and kill his possessions, who does he put in the front of the line? He, he puts all of these kids in the front of the line. Who's in the back? Rachel and Joseph. You know, so, so very tangibly... They, they not only feel this, but they can see it in the actions. And, you know, when they come to, uh, to bring this report of Joseph being killed, you, you would think that their father would at least be consoled with, well, at least I have you. You know, at least, you know, God has not taken all of my sons, all of my daughters, but 
Israel will not be consoled. Yet another reminder that you don't matter. I, I don't even see you as children. When Simeon later is held in Egypt, Jacob doesn't blink an eye. I'm not going down there to rescue Simeon. You know, but I'll hold Benjamin back, right? The, the favoritism is so strong in this. And then, you, you know, you put in Joseph to this, you know, with the brothers. Here he, he's, he's already good looking. He's already got some charisma and some leadership gifts. And now he gets the robe. Now he starts telling us about these dreams, and he can't stop telling us about these dreams. He's bringing back these bad reports to our parents. You can understand why right? They don't feel particularly well disposed towards their brother, even murderous, so much so when they see him. Now, I'm not excusing them by any stretch of the imagination. This is, you know, their life without God. As they are in their bitterness, as they have been subjected to this, they, they, they turn towards their own means, of solving the problem. You know, we're going to get rid of the privileged one. We're going to get rid of this person who has all of this. And then, then, you know, life will be for us. They don't turn to God in that. And then there's Joseph. These are hard, particularly if you've grown up in church, because, you know, we, we get these slices of life. Joseph is a type of Christ. Uh, you know, we will say that, particularly at the end of the story, but that does not mean that Joseph is perfect, right? Uh, we, David is a type of Christ, but, you know, we know that David, uh, you know, had Ill, you know, illicit romances and had one of his best friends killed. You know, Joseph here is portrayed as haughty, uh, tattletale. He's portrayed as someone who is pretty unaware uh, of how he comes into the world of his brothers. And, and we don't need to shy away from that. He is a type of Christ, and we're going to see that. God is at work in his life, just like he's in the work in the life of Judah. We're going to see sort of a parallel track with Joseph and Judah as they go on in the coming chapters. Uh, but, but Joseph, too, there's no reference to God. Uh, there, there's no holding on to him when he's thrown into the pit. Everything is just silent at this moment with regards to him. And, and this is what life is like for the privileged without God. There is no humility. There is no compassion for the ones who don't have what we have, who are the down, downtrodden. Just as we see with Joseph, he does not have compassion on his brothers. He doesn't have a sensitivity to what they are going through. He just continues to push his own agenda forward. You know, I said part of this story, and the purpose of this story is, is to expose to us, you know, sort of this triangle. You know, the, and to ask ourselves, you know, we, we don't only want to read the Bible, right? We want the Bible to read us. And where is the Bible reading you in that story? Are you Jacob, who is throwing up your hands in a certain sense? You know, the, one of the, the clues to this story is that, that issue of sending Joseph 
to find his brothers in Shechem. Like, why does he do that? He's been so protective of Joseph up until that moment, but he sends him to this murderous place to find his brothers. I, I honestly think Jacob doesn't know what to do at that moment. And, and he sends Joseph. You know, are, are you at a point in your life where you don't know the way forward, and so you're just going to take matters into your own hands? Now, that's where we go when God is not active in our life, when he's not central to it. And I, you know, I feel for Jacob. I was, you know, part of my prayer this week praying for parents and, and confessing my own shortcomings in parenting. It's, it's the hardest thing that we do. What is, what is Jacob to do with this brood? You know, he's got Reuben sleeping with his concubine. He's got Simeon and Levi, you know, waging war. Uh, he's got Joseph, who is not sensitive, who is creating, you know, furthering this rift between the... How, how is he to lead in this situation? And I'm right there with Jacob. You know, how, how do I lead? I've got this kid and that kid and uh, not 12, but uh, close. The... Uh, <laughs> Uh, you know, how do, we, how do we lead in that situation? I watch you parents, older, younger, the way that we care about our kids, we don't often know. I guess part of the question is, is God in the center of it? You know, we kind of see what happens with, with Jacob when God is not in the center of it. Is God in the center of your parenting? You know, are you, especially when your kids are younger, do you have them around the table? Are you praying? Are you reading the scriptures? Are you utilizing tools like catechisms and things like that to give them a foundation? Uh, you know, are you repenting? Are you confessing your sin before your kids? When's the last time you as a parent repented to your child? I had to think a little bit. It wasn't coming to me right away. I know I had things to repent about, you know, even this last week as a parent. You know, are we repenting because we're showing them the gospel, that it's not moralism that's going to save you, it's not getting everything right, but it's acknowledging your weakness and going back to the Lord. Is God in the center of our parenting? Or maybe you identify more with the brothers. Maybe you are bitter. I don't know all of your stories, uh, but I know that, you know, in a church setting like this, um, you know, somewhere between 25 and 50 percent uh, of women have been sexually abused. Uh, we know that in families there are things like favoritism. Maybe you're part of a social class that has not been looked upon favorably here. And maybe the bitterness from whatever has happened to you. So it wasn't the brother's fault that Jacob loved Joseph more. But the bitterness of what has happened to you is just churning in your heart and life. You know, so what are you going to do? If God is not in the center of that bitterness, you know, you're going to do what the brothers did. The brothers took a, a you know, very proactive social action. They got rid of the problem. We're going to get rid of the oppressor and we're going to throw him off. But here's the question. Did it did it advance? Did it change their situation? No. In, in fact, it made it worse. You know, it made it worse because when they came back and they said, Joseph's dead, and Jacob refused to be comforted, it just 
rammed the, the point home further. You do not matter. You might as well be a piece of dung because you do not matter to me like Joseph, like Benjamin matter. Where is God in your bitterness? You know, how do we go forward with that? How are you? If he's not in the center of it, beware. <laughs> beware. Because you may find things worse off than you think that they are. And then, and then there's Joseph. You know, I, I would contend that both Judah and Joseph are meant to be read simultaneously throughout these chapters. You know, 47, sort of the culmination in a certain sense when Jacob blesses his kids and he gives Judah the blessing. But both Judah and Joseph are going to go, go to school. We're going to see Judah start in school next week in chapter 38. Um, but Joseph has got to go to school too. Uh, you know, his leadership, at least at the beginning, is very different than the leadership of Moses, for instance. Moses, uh, though he was raised in Pharaoh's court, it's interesting the, the parallels and counter-parallels with Moses and Joseph. Moses, though he was raised in Pharaoh's court, would not be identified with the Egyptians, but rather identified with his people. You remember when he left Pharaoh's court? And, and that was one of the reasons why we know Moses is a, a worthy leader, is his willingness to identify with his people. But Joseph, at least at the beginning, keeps himself apart from his brothers. And, and in the most significant, you know, one of the most significant moments of the story, what does he do? He sends all the Egyptians away, and he identifies with his brothers. He finds himself there. I don't think the Moses of chapter 30, or the, I'm sorry, the Joseph of chapter 37 would have done that. You know, God is at work in Joseph's life as well as he goes from the pit to Potiphar's house to jail and then to uh, that moment of fulfillment. So, you know, when I, when I look at this story, this is one of the places where I identify. I mean, God has been so good to me in my life. I, I have had a lot. I have gifts. I have a beautiful wife, lovely family. You know, God has poured out on me in so many ways. I've had educational opportunities. Everything that you can think of, I have had, you know, do I have the appropriate amount of humility can I, can I uh, walk alongside those who haven't had that? You know, it, 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 will, they, will they feel a sense of companionship and camaraderie? I, I think I probably have been more proud often than not. And, and even maybe just somewhat innocently, but, you know, unaware. Unaware of how, how my... You know, the blessings in my life, you know, have not been experienced by others and has created a rift. Something to think about. Where do you find yourself in these stories? Uh, because my, my point, you know, I think where the, the scriptures leave us is that, the, you know, when we live a life without God, it leaves a mark. It leaves a mark relationally. 
you know, whether it's bitterness or, or whether it's uh, going forward with our own schemes or whether it is a, a pride and a haughtiness, it, it leaves a mark relationally in our lives. And some of you see that very clearly. I mean, even within families, like let's not kid ourselves, right? Uh, even some of you sitting right here, you, you know that bitterness of maybe people sitting in your own row. Look at it's not the way that God wants it or desires it, but he knows our hearts, and, and we know that these things can happen, right? What we need to do is we need to confess it, and we need to be honest before God, and we need to allow the gospel to work in our families of origin. We need to, be, we need to allow the gospel to, to work in a relationship between, you know, fathers and mothers and sons and daughters and, and all of these things. That is where the story is leading us in the negative. It's saying, look at this is what happens when God's not in the center of it. What might happen if God is in the center of it? And, of course, that's the whole story. As people align themselves with Yahweh, the story changes, Right? As people come to a place of worship, the story changes. In the meantime, we see it in the negative and we ask ourselves. The other thing about that, of course, is that faith. You know, not only do our relationships bear the mark of moving without God, but of course our faith is. I mean, how, how can we trust God? How can we see Him at work in our lives when it is our hearts that are leading us and not his. You know, it, we're going to be blind to things. You know, so often when we say God is not at work in our life, so often the problem is with us and not with God. Now, that, that's not to say uh, that you need to try harder. I mean, you need to be careful with that. That's not to say that you've got to get everything right to see God. But even like we, we've sung this morning, you know, whether it's through the deep waters or the fires, whether it's in times of prosperity or whether it's in times of want, we believe that God is there. And we strain to see Him even in the dark places as long as we are willing to keep ourselves submitted before God. And I think that's the third thing that I want to bring out is that when we see the lack, when we see the mark relationally, when we see the mark, you know, with regards to our faith, it exposes the true longings of our heart and soul. And the true longings are, are for the truths of the gospel. What do I mean by that? First, a story. Um, Henry Nouwen, a uh, Catholic priest, uh, he's written a lot. He, he has a, a good way with words. His life is, is very uh, transparent, and, uh, you know, he's spent time with the dying. Uh, he's spent uh, time in an AIDS home. This little story comes out of an AIDS home. Back in the 80s, you know, when we didn't understand, we didn't have the medicines, all of these things. Uh, and so he just went up and down the wards asking patients, most of them young men, if they wanted to talk. As they talked, he listened. And he noticed that he was changing and that his prayers were changing over the course of his time in that ward. 
As he listened to accounts of promiscuity and addiction and self-destructive behavior, he heard another context, a subtext perhaps. He heard hints of a thirst for love that had never been quenched. And his prayer changed. He said, God, help me to see others not solely as my enemies or merely as the ungodly, but help me to see them as thirsty people and give me the courage and the compassion to offer your living water, which alone quenches deep thirst. You know, when we come to this story, we recognize that we all have a deep thirst, a deep longing for the gospel. Whether we are a parent trying to make it for our kids and going to figure out life, whether we are the bitter or whether we are the um, unaware haughty, we all thirst for a father who loves us. We, we want to go to him and, and we want him to take us in our arm, in his arms, and not push us away. We want him to say, you are my beloved child. We, we want the robe of his love and his affection. We want a brother who will not look down on us and despise us because we are not as gifted as he is. We want a brother who will not hate us, who will not be bitter towards us. We want a brother who will love us and who will even give his own life for us. And that is the gospel. A father who loves us, a brother who died for us. We didn't deserve it. We could never merit it. But it's so sweet. Do you know, has that thirst been quenched for you? There, you know, one of the things that Luther said is that all of the Christian life is one of repentance. There is, a, it's one of the great graces God gives us. So when we see ourselves in the story, when the story exposes us for who we are, bitter, haughty, you know, working our own plans in order to get the things that we think that we need. When the story exposes us for what, it, what, what we are, you know, we're invited to go to God and say, here I am. You know me. I can't hide from you. You see me. You search me. You know me. You, you've seen my inmost hearts and thoughts. I'm sorry. Quench my thirst. Be that father who will take me and never let me go, who sees me, who knows me, who loves me. Be that Father who will give me the robe of your affection. And he does, doesn't he? He gives us the robes of his beloved son, Jesus. He doesn't keep it just for him. We get the robe of his righteousness, the sign of his affection. He is ravished by those who come to him in faith. And we have the son who loved us and gave himself for us. He did not stand over us in judgment. 
He did not uh, come and condemn us, fight against us, but rather he died in order that we might live. Do you know him? Has your thirst been quenched? It's the great invitation. Frederick Buechner puts it this way when he talks about the gospel. Turn around. And believe that the good news that we are loved is gooder than we ever dared hoped. And believe in that good news, that to live out of it and towards it, to be in love with that good news is of all, is of all glad things in this world, the gladdest thing of all. The gospel really is. It's a slice, this chapter 37. We're going to keep going. We're going to see how that gospel works in Judah's life and how it works in Joseph's life, how it works in Jacob's life. And my prayer is that our hearts would resound with the news that is gooder and the gospel that is gladdest. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. It, uh, it was a penetrating word. Maybe even somewhat unexpected for us this morning. But Father, it's so refreshing because we know that its cuts are true. And we know that a father who loves us and a son who died for us are the ones that are doing the cutting. So, Lord, we pray that our our hearts would respond. We pray that you would move us in the direction of the true and living water. Thank you for meeting us in this way. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.